from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond and I'm speaking today to Luigi Scazzieri uh, and uh, Agata Gostinska-Jakobowska. We're all in different places, so hopefully the technology will work and we will be able to get through this podcast. And we're going to be talking today about various aspects of the coronavirus pandemic and the resultant economic and political impact on on Europe. And perhaps, Luigi, I could start with you. Um, we, we first started hearing about the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, a couple of months ago. Um, and initially, I suppose, reactions were more or less national and uncoordinated. But from your perspective, what did the, what did the EU do initially? And um, how did the EU respond to the unfolding crisis? Well, thank you, Ian. I think we can level two to criticism, uh, two criticism at the EU if if we wanted to. The first is that its response to the crisis in Italy, which was the hardest hit amongst the member states, was somewhat bungled. So, in late February, Italy uh, appealed for assistance, activating the EU's civil protection mechanism to uh, obtain essential medical equipment. The Commission activated this mechanism, but no member state actually answered the call. And initially, many member states actually banned the export of medical equipment altogether. And at the same time, you had uh, uh, remarks by uh, Christine Lagarde that the the job of the European Central Bank was not to reduce uh, the spread between the borrowing costs of countries like Italy or countries like Germany. And as a result, uh, we saw a large increase in uh, the borrowing cost of the Italian government and an outcry in Italy, even though it quickly became clear that Lagarde had had misspoken. So in a sense, you had a strong feeling of a lack of European um, solidarity that was combined with with images of, on the other hand, and we might uh, touch upon this later, China sending uh, medical teams and selling equipment to Italy. And, you know, my fear is that whereas the EU has now reversed many of its uh, initial mistakes, uh, um, reversing the ban on medical equipment, the ECB itself has intervened decisively to keep Italian um, government bond yields low, I I think there's a question over whether uh, this is really um, enough to change the perceptions of those Italians who perceive uh, there has been a lack of European solidarity. And very briefly, my my second... uh, I think the second criticism of the EU's response is that there's been a lack of coordination in in terms of how member states have um, have responded to the crisis. Uh, and this specifically refers to border uh, control measures. So, for example, initially the EU's priority was to keep uh, internal uh, borders open. Uh, the Commission came up with the idea of uh, 
ban on travelers from outside Schengen. Um, and I mean, even though the idea went through, member states still opted to go ahead with closures, uh, well, not closures of borders, but very severe restrictions on um, on the travel of non-residents into their own uh, into their own countries. And this, uh, the uncoordinated nature of, of border closures created issues. Uh, for example, um, Poland's decision um, meant that thousands of Baltic citizens struggled to get home, whereas, um, for example, the fact that the Netherlands had much less strict measures than Belgium meant that many Belgian citizens went to, to the Netherlands to enjoy themselves, so ultimately undermining the measures that, that Belgium itself had, had taken. Yeah. So that lack of coordination has uh, certainly fed the kind of Eurosceptic narrative that the the EU is um, either useless or even damaging to the interests of its member states. And uh, I've seen some quite alarming polling data from Italy about the number of people who are who are thinking that way. But I guess perhaps I can turn to you and and ask, well, Euro, don't the Eurosceptics have a point actually? I mean, hasn't the the EU been consistently behind the game? Thanks, Ian, for having me and for this question. I think I agree with Luigi's initial analysis um, that indeed uh, EU's initial response was belated. Um, it has made quite a few mistakes and blunders. Um, but having said that, I think, and this is obviously what the Eurosceptics um, have tried to use in their um, narrative. But having said that, I think it would be unfair to you know, accuse the EU of doing simply nothing. Um, now, clearly, um, the EU's own competences in the area of the public health are limited. So in many respects, um, EU's hands are tied. But we can't say that the EU hasn't done anything to help member states uh, deal with this unprecedented uh, challenge. And what the EU has done, and it will probably continue uh, doing even more, is obviously supporting member states in their efforts to um, keep particularly the liquidity of their own businesses and to keep the economy running despite um, these um, challenging uh, times. And in fact, uh, you know, you could argue that the EU, um, after its initial blunders, <laughs> has learned some lessons and improved also um, its uh, uh, communication and stepped up. Um, you know, some of the actions uh, we can probably point to, these are, first of all, um, uh, the European Commission very quickly decided to activate some of the uh, EU spent uh, funds to support member states' health sectors and businesses in need. It has also launched, uh, launched joint procurement projects with member states um, for essential uh, medical equipment, um, which is needed um, in numerous uh, member states. It has also freed up some funds from the Horizon 2020 research program, um, uh, basically for uh, any projects uh, which would be looking into finding a vaccination, uh, which is very much needed. 
um, these days. And uh, the European Commission um, has also very quickly decided to relax the current um, state aid rules um, to make it, uh, in principle, easier for member states to provide business with emergency uh, support. And just uh, one example is that according to this new so-called uh, framework, a temporary framework, um, the member states will be allowed, uh, among other things, to give up up to 800,000 uh, euros to a company through either a direct grant or a tax advantage. They will be also able to set up uh, guarantee schemes supporting, for example, bank loans uh, for companies. And as far as I'm concerned, um, the, some member states, including Germany, I think France, but also Portugal, they have already asked the European Commission to give a green light to their um, uh, economic emergency programs uh, aiming to support uh, their uh, economic sectors, business, businesses in need. But I think um, what is particularly important, and Luigi has already mentioned this um, uh, in passing, is obviously a most recent uh, decision of the European uh, Central Bank um, to basically, um, uh, you know, launch the so-called, and uh, apologies for being a bit geeky <laughs> here, to launch the so-called Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme. Um, the decision was taken on March 18th, and basically this is the uh, um, a program of purchasing both private and public uh, securities, which will run until the end of uh, 2020, uh, which is supposed to sort of help uh, particularly Italy, but also other countries uh, uh, severely hit by crisis. Now, if it wasn't enough, um, uh, the Commission also decided uh, to take an unprecedented decision actually to activate um, the so-called escape clause um, in the Stability and Growth Pact, which basically um, now allows member states or give, uh, gives them a greater room, greater flexibility to pump into um, their uh, economies to sort of, you know, to um, enable emergency spending uh, without actually risking being fined for exceeding uh, the so-called or sort of violating the so-called uh, golden budgetary and deficit rule of 3% and 60% um, uh, of the public uh, public debt. So I would just um, say that this is quite a lot that the EU has has um, uh, already done. But of course, the question is, will it be enough uh, to offset the economic shocks of the current pandemic? So Luigi, um, has what the EU has done so far been enough? Or are there other things that need to be done? And what are the what are the implications if the EU just now sits on its hands? Well, I think the measures that the EU has taken are important. There is, of course, space to do significantly more, I would say. And uh, you know, two things I, I would like to dwell on are, um, first of all, border uh, border measures. Now, at the moment, of course, border measures will need to largely remain in place because of the need to suppress the virus. But there will come a time when certain member states will be tempted to um, to perhaps relax their own internal restrictions as well as, as border checks. And I think it would be very important that these measures were coordinated at the European level because, of course, 
if one country is premature in relaxing its own measures, then uh, there would be the risk of a resurgence of, of, the, of the virus in other countries too. So, you know, I think border um, restrictions should be a regular topic of discussion between national leaders, perhaps in the video conferences that uh, European Council President Charles Michel holds. Um, and the second thing which I think the EU should be doing is um, revamping, in a sense, its communication strategy to counter the Eurosceptic narrative that it is both uh, powerless and um, harmful in what it does, and to actually highlight that the European Union itself is doing a good job in the areas for which it has competence, and that is adding value to member states' own efforts to counter the, uh, the virus without actually getting in the way of what are their own national competencies. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. What about um, the the economic measures, Agatha? I mean, you, you've talked about what's already been done, but um, you know, this is a crisis which is probably going to go on for some time. What, what else does the EU need to do in the economic field? Well, I, mean, I think that, you know, many commentators have been recently arguing that this crisis is actually going to be a fundamental test um, uh, for the Eurozone. It might be either make-up or a break-up moment um, uh, for the Eurozone. And I think it's um, probably a high time, particularly if it uh, turns that the decision of the ECB is not enough, that it's not going to address uh, concerns of the financial markets, which, by the way, they don't seem to be reassured uh, very much about the prospects of the Eurozone sort of dealing with, with this issue, then I think we should probably uh, try to make um, progress finally on the debate, you know, how to complete the Eurozone and finally sort of find a consensus or a compromise between the, you know, hawkish North and dovish South and uh, perhaps deploy the European stability mechanism uh, which was designed um, uh, to basically offer financial assistance um, uh, to countries uh, in need during the Eurozone crisis and finally perhaps deploy it to address the economic shocks um, uh, related with um, coronavirus. Now, obviously, Italian government and the French government are sort of in the front row cheering up the idea of uh, such a possibility. One uh, idea that is currently being floated around is obviously equipping the ESM with new powers to issue the so-called uh, corona bonds. Um, uh, but as you know, to sort of, you know, to, to keep the borrowing costs down. But as you know, this is still probably, I mean, as it stands, a no-go uh, for um, uh, for the hawkish north. I, as it stands, I can't see Germany, Finland or the Netherlands agreeing to this idea of risk sharing. Uh, but what is different, and I guess it's really important to emphasize it, uh, what is different between this crisis and the crisis of 2008 and then sovereign debt crisis of 2010 is that, you know, coronavirus knows no borders, uh, no economic theories, and it can equally um, um, sort of heat both the southern economies like the northern economies. There will be casualties, there will be victims of the coronavirus pandemic both in the south um, and in the north. 
which, and just a final word, uh, uh, which is perhaps an argument that will make the public of the northern member states uh, perhaps uh, uh, more open to the idea of risk sharing. Well, thank you, Agatha. And now, just turning briefly perhaps to the international uh, rather than just European dimensions of this crisis, I wanted to ask Ian whether perhaps, you know, we are of course only seeing the, the first uh, consequences of the coronavirus, but is there a chance that this will lead to a, a massive improvement of China's image? Because we have seen them claiming to be highly successful in countering the virus. Um, so, yes, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. I think it's fair to say that China has been winning the propaganda battle so far, even though um, it was the suppression of the first evidence about the outbreak by the Chinese Communist Party authorities in Wuhan that lost us some precious time. Uh, since then, they have been able to show a fairly effective effort at um, cutting the rate of spread of the virus through some very tough measures that they've taken. And also now they're reaching out to the rest of the world, sending medical equipment, sending doctors to Italy and to other countries. And so they're certainly uh, putting on a big effort to shape the narrative uh, to make China look good. And I think Europeans are waking up to that. The um, high representative for foreign and security policy, Josep Borrell, after a video conference of foreign ministers yesterday, said that um, the EU must be aware that there's a geopolitical component, including a struggle for influence through spinning and the politics of generosity, as he put it. And he said that the EU needed to defend itself against its detractors. And I think that's quite right. It's very important also that the message doesn't spread that the only way to solve this problem is through authoritarian measures. The EU should be talking to Japan and South Korea, both of which have done a good job of cutting the rate of spread of infections. Uh, but by democratic means. And we should be trying to learn lessons from them about how you do this in a democracy without resort to repression and coercion. And then we need to move on. We need in particular to look at what's happening in the EU's neighbourhood. Because if we don't help our neighbours, some of whom are now starting to see very sharp increases in the rate of spread of the infection, then we will see the coronavirus coming back into Europe. And China itself is seeing some of this now with travellers and Chinese people returning from abroad, bringing fresh cases back with them even after the domestic spread of the disease has been brought under control. So we need in particular to look at countries like Turkey, where the rate of increase is quite dramatic, and where you also have uh, 4 million vulnerable refugees. And you need to look at the North African littoral, where every state except Libya is reporting cases of the coronavirus. And I, I suspect that there are probably cases in Libya too, but the state of chaos in that country means that we're not, uh, we're not hearing about them yet. 
And what would be things that the EU could do, uh, you know, in its relations with these countries, considering, for example, uh, you know, the fact that um, that it has imposed uh, travel restrictions on non-Schengen nationals, and that it is uh, restricting the, the export of medical equipment, um, you know, to, to these countries, which are damaging potentially its uh, diplomatic uh, weight with when dealing with them. Well, as Agatha said earlier, the EU is ramping up production of medical equipment. And as it starts to fulfill its own needs, it needs also to start thinking about neighboring countries and what they might need to control this, uh, to control this outbreak. I think it's also worth saying that the EU is already starting to commit significant funds to the fight against the coronavirus. Last month, it gave 114 million euros to the WHO and it committed 15 million euros to Africa and it's made available 47.5 million euros from its research program Horizon 2020 for research into uh, vaccines and treatments and so on. And some of that money, at least, is also available to non-EU partners. The, the research funds are available to research teams that include both EU and non-EU members. So that's quite an important contribution to the international effort to combat the virus. The, the EU needs to keep looking at the situation in Africa in particular. Uh, it, um, uh, it adopted a strategy in the last few days, actually, a, a strategy with Africa, uh, which includes, among other things, cooperation in improving healthcare systems. And in a continent where many healthcare systems are pretty fragile, and where indeed people's baseline health is quite fragile, I think it's incredibly important to think about long-term assistance to strengthen the capabilities there to make sure that uh, the coronavirus doesn't find a, a reservoir there in the long term. It's worth remembering that however good the EU's border controls are, they are never going to be perfect. And uh, there will always be people who legally or illegally, and a lot will be crossing legally, will be entering the EU from countries with less advanced healthcare systems than most European countries. Well, you mentioned the economic damage, and I do wonder, do you see uh, the crisis as potentially having knock-on effects on the pattern of world trade? Well, I think that's something that the EU should be concerned about. You're already hearing voices from Trump's White House, like Peter Navarro, his trade advisor, or Wilbur Ross, his Commerce Secretary, saying, you know, well, this is a great opportunity to onshore or reshore production, to, to bring back uh, production of, for example, pharmaceuticals, but also other goods from China to the US. And if that becomes a general tendency, and I think there are some voices in Europe that, that speak in the same terms, you're going to see a long-term reduction in global economic activity. And I think it would be good for the EU to look at this in the same way that uh, in 2008, the, the G20 um, 
stepped up to the plate to ensure that countries didn't undertake unilateral actions that would damage their neighbours. It would be would be good if the EU, as the biggest trading bloc in the world, reached out to other countries, even if the message isn't going to land in very fertile ground in the US, to say we need to protect the global trading system in the interests of all of us. Can I just add perhaps one point to what Ian has just said? I think what you've illustrated sort of encapsulate greatly the debate that we are facing right now, a sort of discussion in between is basically coronavirus the beginning of greater global integration and perhaps also, you know, greater EU integration, or is it actually going to lead to the return to the nation states, you know, with full borders, greater uh, protectionism. And I think we will see this debate evolving in the next couple of um, weeks and months. And in an insight uh, which we uh, just uh, released, um, and we wrote it together with Luigi, we basically argue that, you know, um, the way um, the EU will react to this crisis uh, will definitely sort of shape the way it is perceived in individual member states. It might actually, if the EU um, uh, addresses the crisis in a proper way, if it takes on board some of the recommendations we uh, offered, I think it actually um, has a potential of even improving its image. Uh, across member states and across the public of those uh, member states when they finally realize that no member state, no country can whatsoever deal with the pandemic of this scale um, on its own. Yeah, I, I think that point about international collaboration is an important one. I mean, of course, it, the image of the EU is only going to improve if the EU is able to, to do this job of collaboration effectively and to coordinate the efforts of the member states. And I must say, I think um, the, the coincidence of having a qualified medical doctor as the president of the European Commission in the form of Ursula von der Leyen is really not a bad thing at this at this stage. Uh, the contrast with uh, some of the other international spokesmen, if I can put it that way, that we we see in the form of Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or others um, is quite stark. And I, I think, you know, she is somebody who can speak with credibility, who understands the science. And hopefully, if the EU can uh, get get a real international collaborative effort going to uh, to counter both the COVID nineteen pandemic itself and the subsequent economic um, economic impacts, then that will be very good for the EU's reputation, but also good for the interests of the people who live in Europe and beyond. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.